Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. The leveraged finance industry. Here to tell us more about it is Stephen O. He is the global head of credit and fixed income and co-head of leveraged finance for Pine Bridge Investments, helping to manage more than $90 billion. He is based in Los Angeles. Stephen O., thank you very much for being with us. Do you see more potential for distressed and leveraged loans in the marketplace currently? Well, we've been in an environment where there has been very strong fundamentals and, and earnings uh, growth, therefore uh, reasonably low default rates. While distress will be increasing in the future, there currently isn't enough excesses to create material problems. Where we see the uh, distress forming is not broad-based, but much more idiosyncratic in nature. All right. I'd love to take a look at where we're coming from in the year and where we're heading. I know you just put out your mid-year outlook uh, for fixed income, and I'm struck by the huge outperformers in the first half, at least in the U.S., the worst rated companies did the best. The riskiest uh, securities uh, outperformed. I'm just wondering, how long do you think that can continue? Well, we're, we're in an environment where a combination of risk-seeking desire to stretch for yield combined with a benign fundamental near-term environment. And so in that environment, we've had really two components outperforming, and one you noted, uh, which was the highest risk component within the leverage finance space. But the other element of that is uh, asset classes that have less interest rate sensitivity because so far year-to-date, uh, most of the differentials in fixed income performance has really been around interest rate risk uh, as opposed to credit spread fears, uh, with the exception of the emerging markets arena. Well, Stephen, maybe you could just offer a little bit more detail. Is it the desire for yield that drives the price up, or is it actually the increased performance of the asset, the underlying asset, the company, for example? It's a combination of both that's taking place right now. And so in that environment, in the short term, yes, the macro GDP growth is very good. We're in a benign environment of very low default rates within the leveraged finance space. Earnings are broadly improving. So there is a element of justification for credit improvement, particularly the area that has perhaps the highest yield, uh, which fits investor appetite. But the way we like to think about it is this is the type of environment where portfolios should be getting more defensive, because when we think about what we're getting paid in terms of incremental units of risk, while triple C's and the highest risk component may be outperforming right now, we don't believe that you're getting paid adequately for a large component of that arena. And we never have pressing insights into exactly when is going to be the top or when is going to be the bottom. But as we recognize the fact that we're not getting paid adequately for some element of risk, the prudent manner and approach is to reduce the risk in your portfolio, not to take more risk as we're seeing more people doing. Stephen, have you witnessed either at Pine Bridge or in uh, your colleagues and uh, competitors' business the increase, uh, sort of buildup of cash in order to anticipate that potential opportunity? 
we're not, we haven't uh, particularly seen that at this point. I think right now, cash is being fully uh, invested uh, in most asset classes because in the market environment where performance is about generating current income and current yield, uh, and cash acts as a drag in that arena. But having said that, uh, as what you get paid in cash has increased uh, in recent months, uh, being in cash and having the liquidity flexibility is, I think, a relatively prudent approach uh, for portfolios in looking to increase cash or alternatively what we like to uh, call cash plus substitute. So high quality, generally floating rate assets uh, where you're getting paid a premium above cash but feel comfortable uh, sitting in for now. What's the most dangerous spot in the fixed income market right now heading into year end? The most dangerous spot are areas that we believe are tied to developed market sovereign yield curve. And so uh, less so on the U.S. side, because the U.S. and the Fed has already been uh, engaged in a long process of normalization. But as we look at, you know, Europe, as we look at Japan, and as we see the shifting in their approach, uh, and as they hit an inflection point in their monetary policy, that really is set up to cause downward volatility uh, for the next 18 months. So that's interesting, uh, especially because other people are pinpointing perhaps concern that they have with either leveraged loans, which have been expanding uh, very quickly and have had much more aggressive structures, as well as on the investment grade side with triple B uh, rated bonds or the lowest tier of investment grade. You're saying, again, that's not where the real risk lies. It's really in sovereign rates uh, in developed markets. Is that is that what I'm hearing? From a broad-based standpoint, that's correct, but you actually hit upon something that's very important because risk is not solely about asset classes, but within asset classes overall. And just as I noted the fact that we believe that we're in an environment right now where on the leveraged loan or the high-yield bond side, triple C risk is not being adequately compensated. On the investment-grade credit side, triple Bs are entering that territory as well. And I think the dilemma that most portfolio managers face is as they look into the future, the next six to 12 months look fairly benign for continuing to take that risk. So it's about timing of when does one feel comfortable reducing that exposure. And it's always the ongoing issue of short-term performance versus long-term. Well, do you believe that this is something that professionals are selling down as a result of this condition? Uh, we're not seeing it broad base, but we are taking the approach and have always taken the approach of a contrarian mindset that when risk appetite is extremely strong, uh, the right approach is to become more defensive. And similarly, the time to buy and, and reach for more risk, when there's a lot of fear in the marketplace uh, uh, right now. And so, you know, you know, I think we're in an environment where we're starting to, as an analogy, you know, we're, we're heading into the baseball playoff push. But now's not the time to swing for home runs. It's really more about timely singles by taking opportunistic advantage of technical-driven deviations. And it's really more about shoring up your defenses right now when it looks like everything is going smoothly. Stephen, just about in 20 seconds, you also are favoring emerging markets, especially in Asia, heading into year end. Is that correct? We favor asset classes in an area where you're getting incrementally paid for complexities, whether in the form of structure like CLOs or bank loans, or in 
geographic uh, complexity in the emerging markets overall. And so, yes, we like the fundamental outlook of EM. Uh, we think that a component of the sell-off that's occurred this year is more technical-driven. Yeah. But you have to be very targeted in your approach to EM. And within Asia, yeah. Asia is really more about a corporate story, not a sovereign story in EM. Stephen O, thank you so much for being with us. That was great. Stephen O, Global Head of Credit and Fixed Income at Pine Bridge Investments. Uh, Pine Bridge manages $90.5 billion globally. Right now, it is that special time of day. We take a look at small and mid-cap stocks. They are turning up, but not as much as the uh, larger cap peers. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg not Stocks Editor, all. Columnist, and Blogger at MLive Go on the Bloomberg. Yeah, not at all. In fact, the, the Russell 2000 is actually lower by a tenth of a percent what? at the moment. It was higher just like 10 well, minutes ago. Well, you know, stocks are bouncing around. <laughs> what can I say? I mean, you got the S&P 500 up a quarter of a percent. It's just in the last few minutes or so that the Russell has taken a, a leg down here course you're not talking about much movement from yesterday's close in either direction that said since we're down let's talk about the stock with the biggest decline Diebold Nixdorf uh the ticker on that one is DBD the maker of automated telemachines has tumbled 33 and a half percent Diebold had an unexpected second quarter loss cut annual forecasts and said it's asking banks to ease loan terms uh, you've got New Link Genetics, ticker NLNK, down 20%. The uh, drug developer reported second quarter revenue, the trout estimates, and said it's cutting 30% of its staff. Also, is its chief financial officer will be leaving in a few months. Biggest gain in the Russell belongs to a container store group, whose ticker is TCS. It's up almost to 39%. Fiscal first quarter results at the retailer showed a narrower loss and higher revenue than analysts expected, based on the Bloomberg survey. And uh, Pandora Media, ticker P, one letter, up 18%. The internet radio company posted a smaller loss and higher sales for the second quarter than analysts predicted. Thank you very much. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Columnist. Remember to send him an email at dwilson at bloomberg.net. Sign up for his daily free email newsletter. And also you'll get his chart of the day featuring Apple and its share buybacks. dwilsonbloomberg.net. We turn our attention now to CBS and its chief executive, Les Moonves. The uh, Los Angeles District Attorney's Office said it would not prosecute Mr. Moonves for alleged sexual crimes because too much time has elapsed to pursue incidents from the 1980s. Here to tell us about CBS and potential risks for the company is Brian Weezer. He is a senior research analyst for Pivotal Research Group. Brian, what's the outlook for CBS with Les Moonves? Well, the question is that. Is it with or without? Uh, even though Moonves um, is um, clearly indicating he intends to stay, um, I mean, it's... Uh, it's hard to fathom that he can uh, continue to do so for very long. Um, you know, you have two issues. One is that, although really this is as much now a board issue as anything, uh, it, it is stunning that uh, the board in this day and age would not have investigated yes. uh, previously. 
given that the reports or rumors of this were out there months ago, uh, the board, as, as sort of press reports have indicated, uh, was aware of reports of this months ago. Uh, on top of the CBS News issues that were widely reported in the wake of the Charlie Rose uh, uh, episode, uh, shall we say, uh, and that they didn't act suggests strongly that you have a board that was in for lack of a better word, management's pocket. Uh, that's a problem then when you look at what's going on with Viacom and the merger potential, where one of the concerns is that you have a board of CBS who is really acting primarily in the CEO's interest, not in shareholders' interests. They're going to go to Viacom at some point. This is just delaying it. Well, but you bring up a lot of good points there. I mean, also the fact that the board is coming out and saying that they're hiring outside counsel to investigate the issue. They're doing that now after the news report came out. Why didn't they do that, uh, you know, six months ago or however long ago when they first found out? Uh, But Brian, translate all of this and concern about the board into what a shareholder ought to be doing or what somebody who's looking at the decline in CBS shares ought to be thinking. Is this a buying opportunity or does this indicate that there are a lot of problems that really maybe haven't even been fleshed out yet? Yeah, well, you know, I've joked that uh, CBS's board has managed to make Viacom's board look good, which is a very difficult task. Um, Unfortunately, that is the the outcome here, whereas prior to all this, CBS had a chance to kind of – well, they had a fighting chance at independence, a fighting chance at persuading investors to, to fight as hard as possible to keep CBS independent so that it could be sold on to someone else uh, for a higher price than what Viacom might pay. And now here we are. Uh, Viacom will be will have the upper hand in any negotiation. Um, you have to assume the combination happens and not on favorable terms to CBS. The, of course, it's impossible to know what those terms will be, what the uh, combinations, uh, what the ratios will be for any share exchanges or anything else like that. But it will happen, and so I wouldn't. It's hard to call it a buying opportunity. I have a hold rating on the stock. Brian, what are the jewels in the CBS? business? Is it the television network and the TV studio? Yeah, I mean, certainly they've been in power, although it it, it does, so many questions are are, are opened up by movies if if he is, in fact, eventually removed, um, because, you know, he singularly was involved in most of their businesses. I mean, Simon & Schuster might be the part that he was least involved with, and of course, is probably the least important. Um, Showtime has developed in its own right um, and is is doing well, and you know has a relatively significant degree of autonomy. But of course, the flagship broadcast network is you know the kind of where the uh, the flywheel. Uh, moves uh, for the whole business. It's it's certainly their all-access business, which is one of the more promising initiatives for streaming uh, service from a you know a traditional broadcaster. Um, it, obviously, the, they've been successful in driving retransmission consent delayed revenues um, and recapturing economics from their um, local broadcast affiliates, um, but primarily because of the success they've had um, at the broadcast network level. So you know that's all. Without movies, it's it's not clear that it would be as successful. Brian Weiser, thank you so much uh, for joining us and for your insights. Brian Weiser is senior research analyst for Pivotal Research Group. And right now I'm looking at the shares of Viacom down about uh, three quarters of a percent and CBS shares down about a half a percent. It's been a rocky period, though, a rocky couple of days for both shares, although Viacom has come out uh, the better of the two by far, uh, in particular uh, from Friday last week when Viacom shares were up about four and a half percent and CBS down more than six. 
What do Puerto Rican municipal bonds as well as tobacco settlement bonds and bonds tied to a New Jersey mega mall have in common? Here to tell us is Matt Winkler. He is columnist and for Bloomberg Opinion. He's also editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News. And you can follow Matt Winkler on Twitter at Matthew underscore Winkler. All right, Matt Winkler, what do these three assets have in common? Uh, They depend on a booming economy, and ours is uh, just a year away from perhaps surpassing the longest expansion in our time, Um, and that was back in the 90s. And uh, there's every indication that the economy can at least match that record and keep going. And uh, the reason why these uh, very risky high-yield investments are doing as well as they are is typically investors want the greatest yield wherever they can get them. And when times are good, which they are right now, uh, the so-called risk on trade is very attractive, especially um, in the debt market where you have some of these issues with coupons of 6% plus. And that is a very, very attractive um, bond, uh, to say the least, when we've had interest rates as low as they've been for 10 years now. So uh, that's what they have in common. And uh, so far, so good. Well, so far, so good. Uh, you highlight some really important statistics here in this column. Uh, for one, uh, the sales tax bonds in Puerto Rico, which has been decimated by uh, Hurricane Maria, has yet to fully rebuild. Those have doubled in price. Uh, You talk about how junk-rated municipal debt has gained more than 4% so far this year, while investors who went to top-rated corporate debt in the U.S., uh, debt of the likes of Apple and uh, Amazon, you would have lost money. Um, Where where does sort of the tipping point comes where people will have to face the reality of perhaps a not-yet-built New Jersey mega mall that they are supposedly going to be financing and then paid back. So Lisa, the dichotomy is that when you're in a normal economic cycle, like presumably the one we're in, when the Fed uh, is very excited about the expansion, so excited that it has announced several times that it's going to raise interest rates, all the investment grade debt uh, behaves as you would expect it to. It retreats because higher interest re, you know, means that at some point uh, the economy has to uh, slow down. For the highest yielding investments, however, in the debt market, it goes its own way until the music stops and it's very sudden. But it's kind of like, uh, for example, 2006. Uh, if we look back now, we should have been pretty concerned because um, it was just two years from the worst or meanest recession since the Great Depression. But in 2006, everybody was partying. Uh, Highest yielding investments were uh, sought after around the world. It was a little bit different then because we were making those investments as AAA. So it was a bit of a um, uh, a misleading and con, con actually, to the world. But here we are today. We have very legitimate high-yield investments. They are uh, rated or not rated at all. They're rated low. And um, they're not going to follow 
the behavior patterns of the of what the Fed does, the way conventional uh, investment grade debt uh, does. And investors, for their part, are going to say, look, as long as things are going well, um, getting the compound interest from uh, the high yielding investment is a far better return, total return, uh, even if it's at a discount on the dollar. And so that's why you've had some of these bankrupt issues, to say the least, appreciate as they have, because as long as they're paying something, people want them. So then there, this really raises an important question, especially as you raise the rating agency issue, uh, the rating, uh, uh, rating company issue uh, from leading up to the prior crisis. Do investors recognize the risks that they're taking the specific uh, issues of these different municipalities or are they investing through index funds that don't necessarily delineate or do the fundamental research that would unearth the problems and figure out what the correct compensation ought to be for investors? So uh, most of the performance is actively managed, so it's not an algorithm. Um, and uh, since you mentioned uh, the context of ratings, you know, ratings themselves have been essentially contrary indicators. Um, when rating companies downgrade investment-grade debt, particularly sovereign debt, uh, it's been a buying opportunity, and you've seen that over and over again. So the reality probably is that the investors who are buying these high-risk munis or muni junk aren't really paying any attention to the credit rating. Uh, it doesn't mean anything to them. What they're looking at is something more fundamental, which is what are these borrowers able to pay right now? Um, what is the return I likely will get for the foreseeable future? And is that reward much greater than the risk that the world's going to come to an end tomorrow? And the way they see it is the world's not going to come to an end tomorrow or the day after or the day after. Therefore, this is very attractive and it's a very rational decision. Um, so that's the mindset. And so far, as I said, so good until it ends. Well, this is in about 30 seconds. I was wondering, is it possible that things are really not as good as many have described? Because state and local pension plans, they have less than three quarters of the money that they need in order to meet their promised payouts. Is it possible that things are really not good under the surface? It's possible. Um, Bloomberg News uh, um, just published a piece that said, uh, you know, the defaults by municipal issuers is relatively low this year. I think only three, I think it mentioned so far this year. So that's another indication that in a booming economy, uh, the big and small state and local governments have tax revenue that is more than adequate to cover their expenses. Matt Winkler. Matt Winkler, thank you so much for being with us. Matt Winkler is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, also editor-in-chief emeritus of Bloomberg News. Our next guest has been a longtime proponent of free trade and the importance that it brings uh, to economies and how much it has helped the American economy. Dr. Adam Posen, president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, D.C. Dr. Posen, I'm so glad that you could join us today. Um, I want to start with a question of who's in your camp now? Republicans traditionally <laughs> were the party of yeah. free trade. Where do we go when the populism of that party flips that narrative on its head? 
Thank you very much for having me on Bloomberg Markets today and to talk about this issue. In 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 terms of it flipping, yeah, this, there's various times in American history where the parties have had different roles on trade. There were periods where the Republicans were anti-trade and the Democrats were not or were pro-free trade. One can think of Cordell Hull, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Secretary of State and Franklin Delano Roosevelt and um, then-President Truman pushing the idea that trade deals with Europe, with Japan, with the major economies were necessary for peace and security, um, as well as the economic benefits. So when you look today, however, it is hard in the Congress to find anybody who's really pushing it. There's a handful of some older Republican senators who are standing by their principles on free trade, and there's a handful of moderate Democrats. Um, but I think that kind of misrepresents the situation. I promise not to go on too long, but two points. First, there are a lot of people in the Congress who may or may not be have free trade out of conviction, but, but can be convinced on national security or on job safety grounds, and for whom being anti-trade isn't as much of a priority as it is, say, for President Trump. And the second thing is, if you look at the polling data, and we're going to be hosting a release from the Pew Research Group on uh, this polling in September, all the recent polling data suggests there's a growing pro-trade, pro-globalization feeling among younger people of all parties in the U.S. And so that's where we have to hope the allies come from for everybody's good. Dr. Posen, uh, it's been written that low-cost airfares in Europe have done more for the integration of Europe than all of the political moves on the part of the various countries in the European Union. Do you believe that internationalization and globalization can be stopped? Uh, I think internationalization and globalization for the world as a whole can't be stopped, but it can be halted, temporarily reversed, and limited. Um, so getting out of the vague into the specific. You're absolutely right, Pim. What matters in some ways both for politics and economics is how international integration affects people's day-to-day -day lives. Do they meet people from other countries? Do they value goods and services from other countries? Do they look at those people as allies and friends? Do they interact in a business sense and see the opportunities? And if the U.S. pulls out and pulls back from leading and supporting a, an open world economy, which the U.S. has done for 70 years, then there will be a lot more uh, small countries and emerging markets who will get bullied, either by the U.S. or by China or by Russia, and their associations will be less. But at the same time, the economic advantages are so overwhelming that it's like you know trying to, to plug the dike. Something else will get through. And so this is why I wrote in Foreign Affairs a few months ago, as much as I dislike what the Trump administration is doing on trade, that what they're doing is probably going to be more harmful through other channels. Trade in the rest of the world will continue. So, Dr. Posen, uh, I want to note that you also sit on a panel of economic advisors to the United States Congressional Budget Office. And with that perspective and that interaction with the current administration, I'd love to get your view on how many people within the administration are proponents of free trade and, uh, and how conflicted it really is there or whether the message is pretty consistent, uh, consistently for tariffs across the board. My sense is the message is consistent across the board. There are one or two people I know who serve in various capacities in the administration who 
I, I believe are trying to fight internally. But look, the president has chosen to make this a priority. I've said for two years when he was the nominee that this is a sincere conviction of his and other people have now documented he's been saying the same things on trade with great fervor for 30 years. He hasn't, he, it's one of the few things he hasn't changed his mind or flip-flopped on in his 30 years of interfering in public life. So, you know, um, I shouldn't say interfering, intervening in public life. Um, so I think it's not worth, be it people betting in markets or journalists getting into, oh, is there somebody in the White House who secretly cares deeply? This is like the nonsense about Colin Powell in Iraq 20, 15 years ago. Um, in the end, the president has a priority on being anti-trade, anti-globalization against U.S. interests, and that dominates. He. His, the people who fit his role, his view on that, are the ones who advance. Just to push back for a second, Dr. Posen, I mean, the president has said that he is for fair trade. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, but his definition of fair trade doesn't make any sense. Um, fair trade is about the idea that you, the people have the choice and uh, that you don't get ridiculous cheating in the sense of uh, substandard goods and services or huge government subsidies. There is a set of goods and services, notably in steel and aluminum, where China has huge subsidies yeah. and probably is cheating. But, you know, it's actually a very small piece of the world economy. It's worth fighting about. But, you know, think of it in football terms, right? Um, there's a difference between, oh my God, somebody tackled low and you call a penalty and they should suffer the penalty versus, oh my God, these guys have like destroyed the playing field. It's unsafe. I'm taking my team off the field. Trump, when he says his definition of fair trade is to claim everything is due to an uneven playing field with unsafe surf hazardous surfaces and that's just wrong it's just you got a team that play you're playing against a team that plays a little dirty and you want to make sure the ref makes most of the calls and that you 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 play the game and you beat them anyway just 20 seconds here uh, dr posen i want to just go back to what you said about how younger people are increasingly for free trade just how significant is that wave i don't know politically i'm frankly not a political scientist i don't know how to assess how influential they'll be but Poll after poll, especially from credible places like Pew, but other mainstream pollsters, shows that there is actually majority support for trade now if you ask the question, um, and that it's increasingly correlated with age, meaning the younger you are, the more in favor you are. And so, you know, this is one of those things where, yeah, there are certain individuals whose communities feel they were hurt by trade, and probably they were hurt by some combination of technology, trade, and cultural change they didn't want to face. Um, but, you know, that's not most of the people in the U.S. We've got to leave it there. Thank you very much. Dr. Adam Posen, he is the president of the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.